This morning, continuing in Romans in chapters 3 and 4, Faith Righteousness Part 1. Now last week we started with the overview of chapters 1 and 2, and what we learned from Paul is that the motivation of the saint when concerning the gospel is neither simply duty, the dry obligation, nor is it the unpredictability of human eagerness. But instead, the saints are both obligated and eager. We're a people that is marked by being eagerly obliged. Paul speaks in Romans chapter 1 and verses 14 through 18 about his eagerness to be obliged to both Jew and barbarian in the things of the gospel. And in verse 14, he says, I'm under obligation both to Greeks and to the barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. And so I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. For I am not ashamed of the gospel. For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, The righteous shall live by faith. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Paul says in the eagerness of his obligation that he is not ashamed of the gospel. And he is not ashamed of the gospel for some very good reasons. It is because the gospel is good. It is the power of God. But not simply the power of God unto creation or annihilation. It is the power of God unto the salvation of men. It is the righteousness of God. It is literally the goodness of God being revealed so that men could not otherwise see it may stand in awe. It is the wrath of God revealed against men. For He is righteous and they are not. And if allowed to their own course... The ungodliness of their character causes them without fail to act in unrighteousness, suppressing the truth. And so when you consider the natural situation of man and this ungodly character that then acting out of that character acts in unrighteousness specifically to suppress the truth, to suppress the power of God seen in the created things, to suppress the righteousness of God being revealed in the gospel, you may ask yourself, how does one obtain such righteous salvation over indignant wrath. Paul gives us his answer. And the answer is not religion. Not even the law of Moses. It was never meant to bring salvation. Instead, it was meant to show you your sins so that you would know you need salvation. Which is why Paul will write later in chapter 3 and verse twenty. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. No, this righteous salvation instead of indignant wrath comes by a righteousness that is through faith. For the righteous shall live by faith. A righteousness that is revealed... According to Paul, both from faith and for faith. And even though it doesn't sound like a mouthful, it actually is. 
The righteousness of God for the salvation of men that is revealed from faith and for faith, that the righteous might live by faith. It is revealed from faith, literally in the Greek. The faith is the source from which righteousness can be seen. But it is not only revealed from faith, as though faith is simply the key to arriving at the righteousness of God. It is revealed for faith. Faith is the purpose for which righteousness is being revealed. And if you're a big thinker, at that point you realize that faith is the purpose for which righteousness is being revealed, a purpose which in turn includes being the source of that very righteousness. What you get is a cyclical redundancy like the ultimate spiritual version of the chicken and the egg which one comes first you can't have one without the other you must have faith to be righteous and righteousness is for faith that you must have to be righteous and righteousness is for faith that you must have to be righteous all of this so that the righteous may actually live. And see, that's kind of the kicker. Because right there, that this thing is what produces life, we arrive immediately at an intense sense of urgency. Man, how do you get started? If righteousness is the source of faith, and faith is for righteousness, whose purpose is being the source of faith, how do you ever get started? Is it not simply a fool's errand? It would be. Except for the fact that it is a good God revealing His righteousness through it for the purpose of His glory. It changes the nature of people. It makes you righteous. It causes you to live from faith, for faith, from faith, for faith, from faith. Last week was most of a year in a bottle. That was last week in a bottle. Today, in Romans 3 and 4, I want to begin with Paul to explore that faith righteousness. But before you can really start with Paul in chapters 3 and 4 about how all of these truths are unfolding and the literally millennia of background, eternity of background, in some instances that stand behind them, Paul must first tell you what he's not going to say. Because I would have you note that it is not sufficient to simply say what you were saying. You know, that's, that, that's the old cliche they teach you in public speaking. The first thing you need to do is tell people what you're going to say. Then you need to say it. Then you need to tell them what you said. I try to have a higher opinion of my audiences than that. <laughs> We're all adults here, right? But I will say this. It is not always sufficient to simply say what you're going to say. That's not always enough. Not always enough, especially when you're speaking of God and righteousness to human beings who by their nature 
are godless and therefore unrighteous. Instead, what we must often do is specifically define what we are not saying unless people take what we do say and run right off the proverbial cliff with it. To avoid honest confusion? No. To avoid what Paul just told us in chapter 1 is the nature of man who when presented with the nature of God in their ungodly character will intentionally take the truth they've been presented with, pervert it and twist it to suppress the reality of God's truth and instead make it something that looks more like them. Something that they are more comfortable with. And so Paul begins in chapter 3 verses 1 through 8 with a discussion about what is not being said. Then what advantage, speaking of religion, by which men may try to approach the truth of God, then what advantage has the Jew, or what is the value of circumcision? Much in every way, to begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. What if some were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. He says, you may say this based off what I'm saying, but by no means is that the case. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar. For as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? I speak in a human way. By no means. For then how could God judge the world? But if through my lie God's truth abounds to His glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And why, do, why not do evil that good may come? As some people slanderously charge us with saying, their condemnation is just. And Paul has gone about proclaiming the truth of God to a people who by their unrighteousness intend to suppress the truth for long enough that he knows the score. He knows the score. He knows that by nature of their ungodliness that men will take what is being said and they will intentionally twist it to try to build a better idol and an experience of not concrete but relative truth that they are much more comfortable with. He says they've already done this to him. Some have taken this very gospel that is being preached and twisted it to accuse God and to excuse sin. And he says this is not what we're saying. There's two suppressions of the truth that Paul deals with here at the beginning of chapter 3. Number one, does the fact that some individual Jews being faithless faithless to God mean that God is faithless in His promise to Israel? You could ask the same question about the church today. Just because some people that are members of the church or, or at least claim to be have been faithless in their pursuit of the Lord, does that mean that God is therefore faithless to His promise? Suppression of the truth number two. If God is glorified in forgiving sin and glory to God is a good thing, then why should we be judged as evil for that which brings Him glory? Shouldn't we get a pat on the back for 
being the means by which good things come. Paul's response, though classically translated as by no means, sounds very bold, very absolute. It is bold, and it is absolute. The English translation doesn't even come close to being as bold or absolute as what Paul is actually saying. Because what Paul is actually saying here doesn't have anything to do with means. It doesn't have anything to do with means. It's talking about something much bigger than means. The word that gets translated as means is genomea. And don't, don't think the means by which something comes. Think it's genomea. Think it's genesis. Think it's beginning. The definition of genomea is to come to existence. So when you put that with not me genomei it literally means not being Paul's not speaking he says when you when you hear the gospel and you come back well if God made a promise to Israel and some of these Israelites they are faithless that means God must be faithless in keeping them as his people if you say that that's not just by no means that's not being this is a this is a question not of position but of existence if you come and say, listen, it is good for God to be glorified and God gets glorified when He forgives the sins of men, so therefore if we go and sin and God is glorified, then sin is good. It's not a question of means. What's being put before you is a question of the nature of the existence of a person that would say such a thing. Paul says the problem, friends, is not wrong thinking. Instead, it is a godless being who therefore, out of his godliness, thinks wrongly. The godless man will never understand the things of God through the means of a godless mind. He's not equipped. It's like trying to study light with a microphone. They are mutually exclusive and incompatible with each other. Man, in the book of 1 Corinthians, when writing to the church at Corinth, Paul deals with this concept very specifically. He, he develops it more than he does in Romans. And if you look at 1 Corinthians chapter 2, in verses 12 through 14, Paul says this. Um, now we have received, this being the saints... Now we have received, not the spirit of the world, but the spirit is who, who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given to us by God. And we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. Interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. So here you have continuity of being you've got the microphone interpreting the sound you've got the camera interpreting the light here you have spiritual people interpreting spiritual truths to other spiritual people and everything flows along nicely 
the natural person in verse 14. This person that Paul is talking about in Romans chapter 1, who is by nature ungodly and therefore acts unrighteously. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. Why not? Is it because the, the things of the Spirit of God are in error and He has located the error, therefore points them out and rejects them? No. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. It literally means he accounts them as foolishness. They are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. It is not just that the natural man has a difficulty in understanding the truths of God when they are presented to him. He is actually not able to do that because when he hears the truth presented to him, he is so far removed from the truth that the truth appears to be foolishness to him. They're simply not equipped. So when you understand why Paul says, before I tell you what I'm going to say, let me assure you of what I'm not saying. Because he understands that there will be people in his audience who are unregenerate, who are ungodly, and are actively suppressing the truth by unrighteousness. Not being. When Paul asks in verse 3, What if some were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? Not being. Friends, salvation is not dependent upon men. Those who speak according to the Spirit know that salvation is dependent upon God. And it's a good thing because as we can clearly see, men are not well equipped for salvation. As a matter of fact, when speaking of this very thing, Paul quotes from King David when he says that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you judge. He's pulling from Psalm chapter 51. Verse 4. But if you really want to understand what David is saying, you really need to look at Psalm chapter 51, verse 4 through 10, where David is wrestling with his own unrighteousness. Where David is wrestling with that which is in him that is so apart from God. And in verse 4, David says, Against you, you only, have I sinned, done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Here you've got one of these very Jews that these men are questioning or would be willing to question Paul about, and it's King David himself. And in this instance, he was faithless. David knows full well that God is absolutely just in the judgment he brings. He also knows of the salvation that is the righteousness of God revealed. He says, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. I was born in this manner. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness and let the bones that you have broken rejoice. 
Hide your face from my sins and blot out my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. David understands that the judgment is thus, that all of the guilt that he has has came directly out of a heart that desires to be anything but what God would have him to be. And before God and God alone is he guilty. He also understands the only remedy, the only salvation is not one single thing that he can find in himself, but what God must do on his behalf. David understood something the Pharisees didn't. We're not going to get to this until next week. David understood something the Pharisees didn't. The law didn't exist so that you could go out and be good enough to have a relationship with the lawgiver. Instead, the lawgiver of his own accord and at the revealing of his own power and righteousness works in his people so that they may fulfill his law. And what does Paul say to this concept? Well, if God promised that He would be their people, what does He say? Does that make God faithless? That He was not able to keep them not being. The heart of the saint knows God is faithful and does not abandon His promise. Which is why in Romans chapter 11, verse 1, Paul assures us that the God of their salvation has not abandoned them. When he says, I ask then, has God rejected His people not being? For I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, and a member of the tribe of Benjamin. So many more like Him. A remnant that has been maintained through the ages. That is not the only suppression of the truth here in chapter 3. There is also one that is much broader. applies to Jew and Gentile, barbarian, Greek. Can it be that if God gets glory from forgiving sin, then going about sinning is the means by which good things come to God? A reminder to those who think this way. Scripture would tell us that God is indeed glorified in forgiving sin. God is also glorified in judgment and the judging of sin. And it would do the creature well when standing before the judge who sees him to remember that regardless of what happens with me, regardless of what happens with you, God will get the glory due his name either way. This is a God that you fall before in faithfulness, knowing that He is good to give mercy because the very gospel of which we read is His goodness revealed. See, the problem with men who say that, this is, this is the not being part. The problem with men who can come up and look at God and go, okay, Paul, you say 
You say that men are sinners. You say sin brings judgment. You say God is righteous. And a righteous God shows Himself glorious when He figures out a way in justice to forgive sinners. Well, great. What we need to do is just go out and sin it up, man. Because the more we sin, the more He forgives, the more glory He gets, the better things are. What Paul is saying, the problem is not your thought process. The problem is the nature of your being. It's what you want. Those people are showing their hearts to not care anything about the truth of God. They're showing their hearts to want to justify their sin. Let me figure out how to use God. Let me figure out how to use the gospel to get what I wanted before I even knew there was a God. If you don't believe it, all you have to do is fast forward to Romans chapter 6, verse 15 through 18. Paul describes the condition this way. What then? Are we to sin because we are not under the law but under grace? This is a very eloquent way of asking the same question he asked back in chapter 3. He's taken this whole concept of gospel and he's wadded it up in this ball and he's put the label of grace on it, which certainly applies. It's coming. Certainly applies. He says, okay, so what then? So God's gracious and that is good. It's a good thing. But for grace to be given, there's got to be some really bad stuff happening first. There's prerequisites that are involved here. You can't have grace without guilt. There's nothing to be gracious to. So, something really bad had to have happened. This is part of that whole I'm not ashamed of the gospel thing. Because you go, why would you be ashamed of the gospel? Man, it's the power of God. It's the goodness of God. It's for salvation. Yeah, it's because the wrath of God revealed against men. And nobody likes to talk about that because everybody gets real uncomfortable because we're all men. Okay. What then? Are we to sin because we are under grace and not under the law? Not being. Do you not know? Okay, here's the way you understand. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either to sin, which leads to death, or to obedience, which leads to righteousness okay full stop just for a second in Paul in Paulinian writings he talks a lot John does the same thing Christ talked about it he talks a lot about enslavement to one of two realities and he puts every single man that exists every single human being into one of two boats either slaves to sin or slaves to righteousness. But this slavery is different than the physical slavery of men that we see working itself out in this world over the millennium and even unto this day. The enslavement that happens physically amongst men is an enslavement that is against the will of the slave. Man, it's against the slave's will, and all the slave wants to do is get away, and if you give them the right opportunity, they're gone. That is not the case here. When it comes 
to the enslavement of mankind, their enslavement, Paul says, is not against their will. And guys, this does not make the situation better. This makes it worse. Oh man, if human man, if we were only enslaved to sin against our will, if we could just find some little trick to slip the chain, it's not the problem. Do you not know that if you present yourself, if you present yourself, this is not a picture of someone who is captured. This is a picture of someone who comes willingly by the course of their own will. If you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are the slave of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. Guys, the horrific thing about the enslavement to sin and the reason why the natural man, when presented with the truth of God in his ungodliness, will always use unrighteous thought and activity to suppress the truth and say, no, that's not true, or to twist it into something that is more palatable for him is not because he's enslaved to sin against his will. He's enslaved by his will. And friends, for the natural... You want a motivation to evangelism? Friends, for the natural man, that is a terrifying position. Man, you literally can't get away. You take all of the things that we normally consider to be part of enslavement, all of the entrappings, the chains, the doors, the bars... The mental abuse. You want to talk about enslavement to sin? If you take away the addiction, the proclivities, the habits, if you take all of that away where there's nothing holding them, they still wouldn't leave. Because they're doing it on purpose. Oh, they may not like the results of their sin. They may not like the destruction and pain it brings. But like any good addict, they love the fix more than they hate the pain. And men are enslaved by their will. Men are enslaved by their will. Well, man, I want to be enslaved to righteousness then. I mean, here you've got two groups of people. You've got these groups of people that are presenting themselves to be slaves to something. Apparently, you only get two choices. So, man, if it's going to be a slave to sin or a slave to righteousness, man, I want righteousness. The problem is, is you don't. Not the natural man. Because righteousness is of God and he is definitively ungodly. He doesn't want that. That's the point. People say, well, I'll, I'll change my desire. I'll want something different. See? Oh, friends. We do a very good job of taking the truth of God and producing an idol that looks just like a man, don't we? Friends, you're not God. You have no ability to change what your desire is of your own accord. Do you understand if you did, there would be no emotional heartache in this world? There would be none. If you could change what you want, 
when you don't get something you want and you were heartbroken over it to the point that you wish the pain could just go away, you would just change the fact that you wanted it and everything would be fine. Men are slaves to their own desire. They present themselves willingly either to sin that leads to death or obedience which leads to righteousness and life. So how in the world, we're right back to you got to have faith to be righteous and you got to be righteous to have faith. How, how can this ever work? Am I, am I not just wasting our time here talking about fallacies and redundancies that cannot be overcome? No. Because the fact of the matter is, is the creature lives in the system. And the Creator does not. Paul continues and says this in 17. You would think he would be at a desperate place. But he's not at a desperate place. The next thing that comes out of his mouth is thanksgiving. Not woe. He says, but thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient, how? From the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed and having been set free from sin have become slaves of righteousness. I'm speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations for just as you were once presenting your members as slaves to impurity and lawlessness leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness leading to sanctification. How is it that you went from being one person who willfully presented yourself to a slave to sin, now willfully presents themselves as a slave to righteousness? Praise be. Not, see, we throw around the phrase praise God so much. We do it so much it's become cliche. It's just something you say. No, Paul is saying, he says, man, how did you get this way? God. How did you get this way? How did you become from being willfully obedient to sin to willfully obedient to righteousness? How did that happen? God. In a very particular way. When you became obedient from the heart. And it was God. God changed your heart. He changed a desire that you had no ability to change. So that you may instead be a slave to the only thing that is worth being enslaved to in all of existence. And that is to the goodness of the Creator Himself, Man, the righteousness of God is being revealed in the gospel. In chapter 3 and verse 21 through 26, Paul says, Now, that's how it was in your nature. That's how it was when you were ungodly and acting out of that ungodliness and unrighteousness and twisting the truth at every turn and saying I said stuff I didn't say and trying to figure out how to make salvation an excuse to sin. That's how it was. But praise be to God. Praise be to God that you can become obedient from the heart. From the heart. Not, not from pragmatism. Not from, well, you know, if there is a hell, heaven will sure be a lot better and this whole faith thing seems pretty easy. No. 
obedient from the heart. Now, now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Redemption in Christ Jesus whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in His divine forbearance He had passed over former sins. It was to show His righteousness at the present time so that He might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Notice, Paul doesn't want anybody to misunderstand. He says, here's what I'm not saying. Now before we move on, let me remind you of what I've already said. And he gives a little short little gospel recap here. Verse 21, what is the gospel? The gospel is the righteousness of God manifest. This is the righteousness of God revealed. Verse 22, what is the gospel? The gospel is the righteousness of God that is revealed through faith, from faith, and for faith. Why do you need it? Because the gospel is the wrath of God revealed against the sins of men. You need it because all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, who by their ungodly character suppress the truth and unrighteousness. But he keeps the recap pretty short. And he goes on with new information. He says, you've been justified. <laughs> How do you do this in a week? And you've been justified. That doesn't mean that you get off. You didn't cut a deal. The officer didn't have... He, he, he didn't have unmerited mercy on you, or excuse me, he didn't have unjustified mercy on you and just write you a warning because you seem like a pleasant guy. The judge didn't just let you slide. You were justified. In some manner that Paul is yet to reveal, in some manner, the debt that you owed, that justice demanded, was satisfied on your behalf, and Paul says this comes through grace. Salvation's source, Paul has made clear in righteousness, is faith. But its cause is grace. The unmerited favor of God. He said, I thought we were talking about justice. We are. It is the unmerited favor of God. As a matter of fact, it is favor that we have actually demerited. For we have done ever we're not just neutral, where God comes in and goes, Well, I really don't owe him anything, but I could be good to him. No. The judgment is that the wages of sin is death. And that all having sinned and fallen short of the glory of God are guilty before the judge. And yet, it is not going to be guilt that the gospel brings. It is not even going to be a fresh start and a clean slate. It is going to be the favor of God that it brings. Unmerited favor in spite of our demeriting actions. And it comes only as 
Anything unmerited can come. It's unmerited. It's a gift or it doesn't come at all. Such is the nature of grace. How? Redemption and propitiation. Redemption. Literally means to to purchase back. To purchase back by the means of a ransom. Paul says, God's grace to you that is being revealed in the gospel is that He is buying you from one thing to another. He's buying you from something else to Himself. He's buying you from the slave master of the sin of your own heart in order to redeem you to a new heart that is enslavement to all that is good and not against your will, but by it. How does he do that? Because I gotta tell you guys, when I was one of the things that has been over the years at one time was very frustrating to me, but now is it's not, it's just it's on the radar for how we need to approach things. One of the things that I think we've really got to be careful to do, I grew up in church my whole life. I know a bunch of you are the same way. I heard my whole life that Jesus paid your debt. And and when you ask how, you got kind of these broad statements about, well, he died on the cross in your place, and okay, like how is this this Roman crucifixion that I can like literally only see the ruins of that are left two thousand years ago? How is that supposed to be in my place? How does that apply to me? What kind of debt did I owe? You know, I was saved when I was seven. I'm just a kid. I, you know. I've got an old cigar box that I put my mowing money in on on my dresser. You know, that's pretty much my concept of finances. I've got a little passbook for a savings account at the bank that my great granny started for me with like 20 bucks on the day I was born, like she did all of her great grandkids. You know, I mean, this is about as much as I understand about money. Like, how did I, what did I owe? And how, how was that paid for? How did he buy me? We were ransomed. By the propitiation, he says, of the blood of Jesus Christ. Now, the concept of ransom or redemption and propitiation very close together, tightly related, not the same thing. The ransom, the redemption, atonement if you want to use the Old Testament term, this is the just the fact that you were once forfeit and now you have been purchased back. The propitiation is all of the stuff and all of the means by which that deal was struck. And so, if you're going to propitiate a debt, you have to have the right currency, you have to have the right amount, it has to be remitted at the right place, and it has to be remitted by the right time. Anybody that's ever paid a mortgage understands this. You've got to have American currency, that's all they take here. You've got to be at the right bank, you can't pay your mortgage at McDonald's, you guys know the drill. You have to be there on the right day of the month, or early, Got to be when they're open, all that kind of stuff. There are ways that this deal must go down. Paul says the manner in which the redemptive price was paid to buy us back 
from enslavement to sin to enslavement to righteousness, sin that led to death and righteousness and obedience that leads to life, the manner in which that transaction was made was by the blood of Christ. But not just any blood of Christ. It was made by the lifeblood of Christ because that is the debt that was owed. The reality is, is the Creator has the right, the authority, and the ability to set the price of His own creation. This is the way, especially creators that are omnipotent and have no need outside of themselves, this is the way creativity works. Man, if Michelangelo chisels the statue, he's the guy that gets to set the value. And you can either take it or leave it. God set the value, He set the price on the rebellion of His creatures. In Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. The wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is the only way unmerited grace can come. The gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. God said the cost of rebellion, it's, and it's the nature of the creation. It's the nature of God. In Him was life, and life is the light of men. He created you. He is the source of life. If you depart in rebellion, there is only one answer, and that is death. Such is the wage of rebellion. Such is the wage of the desires of man's heart. Whatever shall we do? Whatever shall we do? Friends, of our own accord, in a vacuum, there's nothing we can do. Nothing. Man, you can't church it up enough. You can't say the right things. Repeat after me. Ever head bow, ever eye closed, does not work. Are the Jews any better off? Nope. They're way better at that kind of stuff than we are, by the way. And they're not any better off either, is what Paul says. What do you do? Praise be to God. Praise be to God that He saw fit to ransom His people back to Himself and was willing to use. Man, the price is life. Life blood. Not only was He willing to ransom His people back to Him, but He was willing to use the blood of His own Son to do it. He was willing to use the blood of His own Son to do it. Specifically, Paul says, so that He might be both just and the justifier. That in forgiving sin and bringing salvation, God might still be just. This is just nearly an impossibility for men to get their mind wrapped around. Because the idea here is that being a sinner and being in rebellion makes you guilty of the penalty of that rebellion. And if God doesn't bring it, He's no longer just. This is the way we would look at a judge that sit on a bench 
that had murderers and rapists before him all day long and just said, don't worry about it, man. You're forgiven. Go about your business. We would say, that's not just. That's an unjust judge. You don't just let that stuff go. It's funny how relative people are. (laughs) We talk about little sins. I think the only thing that makes a sin little is that we tend to commit it a lot. It's just a relative concept in our own mind. Don't get me wrong. Scripture certainly teaches that all sins are not equal. But that all sin is abhorrent before God. And yet, when it comes to the small things, you know, we let those pass. And we tend to because we know we're guilty on a daily basis. They file before the judge. And this judge is going to be the justifier. He's going to ransom you back. He's going to place you back in literally in the right is what it means. He's going to place you back in the right. But by golly, he's going to be just. How do you do that? How do you do that? Man, you have David in Psalm chapter 51. He's pouring his heart out to God. Man, we love it. We quote it all the time. We sing songs about it. Put in me a clean heart, O God. Wash me with hyssop. Make me clean. It's a beautiful thing. You know what David was singing about? He was singing about the fact that motivated by keeping adultery secret, he had committed murder against Uriah the Hittite. As a consequence for his sin, had lost the child that was conceived. So, here's Paul and he's saying, now the righteousness of God has been manifest apart from the law. And it's by grace, through faith, and it's your redemption, man, your ransom. God is buying you back from enslavement to sin to enslavement to all that is good. And the thing that He's going to use to buy you back, because, buddy, the price on your head is lifeblood. It's a death sentence. The price that He's going to pay is the lifeblood of His own Son. And He's doing this because He is simultaneously just and in His love willing to justify you So somebody's got to pay. And it's got to be somebody that doesn't owe. Because if they owe, they've only got one life to give. He's doing this so that he may be just and the justifier because in his divine forbearance he passed over former sins. We read David that Paul just quoted. We go, man, isn't it's just so uplifting, you know? So uplifting. It is. Man, it better be. Golly, it's the glory of God. Man, put in me a clean heart, oh God. How do you think Uriah's father in law felt about it? Man, the guy had abused his daughter, murdered his son in law. And he's the king. I mean, if anybody's supposed to be responsible, it's supposed to be him. 
And David doesn't even deny it, man. He just comes up and goes, yep, I did it. My sin is constantly before me. I know that you and only you are the one that I've sinned against. You know, I mean, there's all these guys out here, according to men, that would like to have my head, but really they're not much of a concern because, whoa. I know I did it out of my own nature. I know I did it out of, out of the very heart with which I was conceived. You wash me. You clean me. You put a different heart in me. Because I have no ability to do it on my own. And God looked down, and I'm guessing, we don't know, Scripture doesn't tell us, but I'm guessing that what God did was very different from what from what Bathsheba's father or Uriah's father would have wanted done. And yet in doing so, he remains just. Because the price was paid. And it was paid by the life of his own son. Guys, God doesn't just write off debt. He doesn't. He pays for it. And so let us consider the gospel. And the gospel is the righteousness of God revealed. It's the goodness of God that is being shown to us. And there is nowhere, nowhere, that it is more clearly perceived than in the fact that a guiltless creator was given as the ransom for a guilty creature. And guys, that's the thing. He's the creator. He has no need. It's not like he dumped his whole fortune of treasure and power into this creation and now he just, it's too big to fail. Got to do something to save it. Man, Scripture says that he speaks universes into existence and an instant later has no less power than he had before. He is the definition. You know the old cliche, your dad would say, boy, I brought you in this world, I'll take you out, I'll make another one that looks just like you. Okay, with him it's actually true. He could have just said, no, do it again, pop, let there be light. You want to see goodness? Owing nothing to us. Beholden to no condition or, or situation or corner he was backed into. But just because he's good and for no other reason said, I will sacrifice myself in guiltlessness on behalf of a creature that I could just make a zillion more of in a moment. The creator given for the creature. That they might know that he is good to the Colossians and I'll leave you with this today there's no good way to cut this off this is the end of part one click right press play on part two see you next week I'll leave you with this there is nowhere because man chapter four is the is the glory chapter I think there's nowhere concisely that we can see the goodness of God in giving himself for sinful men more than we can see it in Colossians chapter one Verses 11 through 23. 
verse 11, Paul says, May you be strengthened with all power according to His glorious might, for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you. He's qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints of light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of our sins. He is the image of the invisible God and the firstborn of all creation. For by Him all things were created in heaven and on earth, invisible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through Him and for Him, and He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything He might be preeminent. For in Him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through Him to reconcile to Himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of His cross. And you, who were once alienated and hostile in mind, Doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. I'm not ashamed of the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. It is the righteousness of God revealed. A God who is so righteous that He would ransom a guilty creature with the blood of His guiltless Son. And you should run to God in faith. You should run to God in faith. Say, yeah, but you were just talking earlier, man. You got you got to have faith to be righteous. You got to be righteous to have faith. You know, I, man, with man, all these things are impossible. What look, man? You're thinking from inside the creation. Salvation comes from outside of it. It comes from the Creator, and where it starts is not in the faith righteousness loop. Where it starts is with a righteous God who chooses to reveal Himself in that loop. Run to Christ. Ask. You don't have faith? Ask. Ask for faith. Say, man, I don't believe it any more than I believe tomorrow the sun's coming up blue. That's fine. You ain't got to take my word for it. Go ask Him for faith. See what you get. I mean, really ask. You'll blow your mind. You'll change your heart. He'll take you from slavery to death and make you a slave to life. Call on the name of the Lord. Be saved. Be saved. Let's pray.